If you've ever wondered why it is that some people love and worship Jesus and other people despise Jesus and other people despise Jesus and then love and worship Jesus, you're not alone. It's one of those things we wonder about. Why is it that the very same one who many people, millions of people see as wonderful and trust in with their eternal life is the very same one who was despised and rejected and then executed? And why is it that some of those who despise and reject him then in time see him as wonderful, matchless, and a savior and they trust in him with their eternal life? John chapter 4 helps us. doesn't answer all of the whys and hows. But John chapter 4, or the gospel of Jesus, according to John, fourth chapter, gives us some insight. In fact, it gives us a lot of insight. In the fourth chapter of the gospel, according to John, we're studying John as a church, so we're in that uh, book of the Bible, or we're studying Jesus in John's account. We find the woman at the well, perhaps you've heard of her, or the Samaritan woman. And there is so much going on. Usually I, I dread the, the thought of losing my notes because I've got my Bible and I've got my notes and they're interweaved and I've got something I'm following. If there were ever going to be a day, watch it happen. Good thing I'm not superstitious. If there were ever going to be a day where I didn't have any notes and I needed to preach something, I would want it to be John 4. It would be a good day to have it happen because there's so much happening. There's so much going on that the fruit is low-lying. There's so many profound, profoundly offensive things even and profoundly wonderful things going on that you can't help but be paying attention and, and thinking, this is amazing. This is interesting. This is why people hate Jesus. Oh, this is why people love Jesus. This is why people who, love, who hate Jesus end up loving Jesus. It's fascinating. And if you pay attention this morning, I guarantee you, you can learn a thing or two about even how you can engage and interact with people as you talk to them about Jesus in the 21st century. There's a lot happening here. One time, my wife and I had the privilege of sitting down for probably a couple of hours talking to unbelievers about John 4. And it was one of the easiest things I've ever done in my life. And it was one of the most enjoyable things because I didn't have to surface issues and bring up issues. The issues are there and they're answered right there. And so I didn't have to do any selling. I didn't have to do any arm twisting or convincing. It's pretty, pretty straightforward right there, right in front of us. So I think we'll have a great time this morning as we begin looking at John 4. There's no way that we'll get done, but this section is in the first 42 verses and, and we'll get started this morning. Along the way, I'll pause now and then and say, okay, let's make an observation about Jesus. Let's draw a conclusion about Jesus. I know my list of conclusions is not exhaustive. This is a great exercise for you. Read John 4 and write down statements uh, that are conclusive statements about Jesus. Jesus is. Based upon what I've read, Jesus is. Based upon what I've read, Jesus is not. It's fascinating personal Bible study you can do. Well, with that said, let's just go ahead and dive in. Let's look at the first six verses and then we'll, we'll pause. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees, 
Okay, the official religious leaders of the Jews had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples, more followers than John. That would be John the Baptist. Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. Verse 3 says, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob, this is Jacob from the Old Testament, had given his son Joseph. This is back in Genesis. Verse 6 says, Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Before we get into the geographical and what's happening kinds of details, I, I already can't help myself and draw a conclusion about Jesus and, and see that, that Jesus isn't going to let anybody else be in charge of his agenda. He's not going to let anyone else dictate and, and use him for their own political reasons. And this comes up again and again in the gospel accounts. Okay? Something's happening, he's becoming popular, and so he leaves. Because he doesn't want the populace, even unbelievers, to try to somehow harness him for their agendas, political or otherwise. Jesus is in charge. We see it here, as we see it in many places, but I just couldn't resist. He's in charge. He's not going to be used for the agenda of others. Now, if you recall, we're moving now, it says, from Judea to Galilee. It's about a three-day walk. If you recall, uh, I'm not a, G, uh, a map person. Um, I'm becoming more and more of one. The more I, I don't know, you get older, you like history, maybe you like maps. I don't know. But it is important just to remember a few basic things. Jesus is in the Judea region, so that's in the south, bottom of the map, because he's around Jerusalem. Okay, And he's going to go north toward Lebanon, and he's going to go up to the Galilee region. Okay, We know Sea of Galilee, or technically the Lake of Galilee. So he's down below, he's going to move up, three-day walk. If it helps you to picture it in your mind, toward the north, up toward today's Lebanon, you have the Sea of Galilee, Galilee. It's even today called the Galilee. It's the region. But connecting the Sea of, sea of Galilee is the Jordan River. It goes right down the map and it goes to the Dead Sea. And the Dead Sea area gets you pretty close to Jerusalem, Judea. It's in that area. Again, you don't need to be a map expert, but if you just understand a couple of basic things like that, it's helpful. Okay, so he's where, where the hustle and bustle is, the Judean region. He's where things are happening because Jerusalem is the capital and, and that's where all the, the controversy happens so many times and it's time to get away because he doesn't want them to try to harness him for their agenda. But he has to go, our text says, through Samaria. Again, that's a region. And that becomes significant that he has to go through Samaria. It's about noon, according to our text, the sixth hour. So it could be very hot, and he's going to be there, and he's going to be there for a drink. Now, if there were a musical score to this, there would be a dramatic shift. Okay? I forgot what musical score I was listening to, and I was, I think it was Man of Steel. And however it was working, it was just right. But I thought better than playing it here for you this morning, so... Just somehow Hans Zimmer is involved and there's something happening and there's a dramatic shift. You get the idea. 
Verse 7, a woman. Ah, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So that, this, there's a lot happening here. To, to misunderstand it would be to think this is going to get spicy. There's a lot happening. So there's a Samaritan there and the Samaritans and the Jews don't get along. I'll say more about that in a moment. But not only is there a Samaritan there in Samaria, imagine that. It's a Samaritan woman. Now Jesus is going to talk to this woman. Jesus is alone. She's alone. Doesn't really fit with cultural norms. Doesn't fit with cultural norms to talk to Samaritans if you're a Jew. You'd rather not go through Samaria, but it's expedient. We know Jesus is in charge. He goes through Samaria on purpose, even though it is the shortest route, the best route. He's going to talk to a woman. Hmm. Right? He's going to talk to a Samaritan woman. Uh, Not customary from what we know. We're reading in between the lines, but this is pretty common to, to think this, that the, woman, the women typically didn't go alone. They would go with their friends, family members. You didn't typically go at noon because it could be, and I'm not saying it was here, but typically that if it's going to be hot, it's going to be hot then. So you go in the morning or you go later in the day. You go in groups. Based upon what we're going to learn about this lady later, this woman later, We can put two and two together why she's alone when it's not popular to go there. Because she's a questionable woman with a questionable reputation, an outcast. So not only is she a Samaritan, she's a woman, she's an outcast, and here's Jesus alone with her. More about Samaritans in a moment. How about verse 9? Verse 9 says, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Parenthesis, John gives us, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Oh, and I forgot to mention, presumably, he asked her for a drink, and it would be a drink from her cup. And she's like, hold on. What's happening here? You're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan woman, and we have nothing to do with each other. There's a radical conflict here. What what in the world? This is crazy. Simple, simple understanding of Samaritans. Overly simple, but I'll give it to you, and hopefully you'll remember for the rest of your Bible reading life. Samaritans, think of Samaritans as a cult. Okay? A cultic break-off of Judaism. So you think of cults today that, that name the name of Christ? So the, these folks would talk about Yahweh, the one true God. They would sound a lot like Jews. They believe the first five books of the Bible, but they would be a cult, just like you know people who are involved in religious groups who talk about Jesus, but they either add to the Bible or take away from the Bible, and they believe deviant things about Jesus, and you say, oh, that's not really Christian, that's a cult. It's the same kind of thing. Two major issues with the Samaritans. The first one is their authority. Their authority would be only the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch as it's called. They rejected all the rest. Like other cults who take away or add to 
Their source of authority is different. And so they're going to come to wrong conclusions about God and his world and how he saves and how he works. So authority is wrong, and we're going to see this even in our text. And the other one, but we know from history, but the other one is their view of sacred space, let's say. Their view of sacred scripture, their view of sacred space. Specifically, where do we go to meet with God? Or where does God meet with his people specially? Okay? Uniquely. The key word then is temple. And in John's gospel, we've been seeing this temple theme from chapter 1. It's in chapter 2. And now we see it here. And it's going to run throughout. And the reason that's so important is because Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the unique place where you go to meet with God. The Old Testament temple that we learn about in the Old Testament is meant to anticipate, to point forward to Jesus who will be the ultimate unique meeting place where people will come to meet with God. Well, you see why this is relevant here. Because the Jews and the Samaritans fight over this issue before Jesus shows up. The Jews say you go to Mount Zion, right? Jerusalem. Mount Zion, that's where you go. That's why the temple is there. That's why we just learned about it in chapter 2. And the Samaritans, they believe you go to Mount Gerizim. Okay? And they're going to have their temple there that's been destroyed, but it's still their holy site at this time. So where does God uniquely meet with his people? Mount Gerizim will die on that hill, pun intended. Mount Zion, the Jews say, will die on that hill. So, sacred authority, sacred scripture is a rub, and sacred space, if you will. This is awesome. This is teeing things up perfectly for Jesus' emphasis regarding himself as the unique one, the unique temple. Okay? It's exciting. So on your way out, I say, who are the Samaritans? First five books only, different place of worship. You don't have to remember Mount Gerizim, I don't care. That's what's so confusing. That's why they're a cult. They've got it wrong, as we'll hear from Jesus. I have a whole page of historical explanations regarding Assyrian capturing, and you know what? The great news is, we already covered it. We can skip it. Awesome. Because I would have just ended up saying, in other words, sacred scripture, sacred space. But if you want to learn more, I can certainly give you all sorts of details. Striking reality number two that I've observed here is that Jesus is above being defiled. Jesus, as the unique one who came on mission as a redeemer, is uniquely above and beyond being defiled, becoming spiritually dirty. I maybe wouldn't draw this conclusion if I didn't know it from other texts. Like when Jesus would touch people with leprosy. You can't do that. You can if you're the all-powerful one who's here on a rescue mission to free people from things. And here Jesus is, hey, do you have a cup for me to drink out of, you dirty Samaritan woman? Spiritually dirty. 
He's not afraid. He's not going to be compromised. He's actually going to come and he's going to rescue and make all things new, including spiritually dirty people. I would venture to say to you that this would be entirely and utterly inappropriate for any of Jesus' merely human disciples. But Jesus is unique and on mission to rescue, and he is not going to be defiled. Okay, let's move on. Verse 10 brings our soundtrack to another kind of shift. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked Him, and He would have given you living water. You see what Jesus is doing masterfully like no one can. He takes this, this conversation that started about something physical on purpose and she leaves it in the physical and he turns it into a spiritual conversation and he's saying, if you only knew. But you don't know. I, I would give you living water. The most important thing I could have given you, specifically myself, the unique gift from God and eternal life that's associated with me. So this just became very, very interesting. You may want to make a note in your margin. You may not, but if you would like to do that, in the margin of verse 10, I have written down Jeremiah 2.13. Jeremiah 2.13, God says, of himself, that he is the fountain of living water. I am the fountain of living water. I give you life. And here Jesus is saying, if you would have asked me, I would have given you life. If you knew about the gift from God. I like Jeremiah 2.13 as a great cross-reference. A pretty obvious striking reality about Jesus here, another one, is that Jesus is the giver of life. And specifically, we're going to see in verse 13, he's the giver of eternal life. He has that kind of power. How about verse 11? Let's keep going. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? She's still interpreting Jesus literally, and I don't know how we could blame her. But she's still interpreting Jesus literally. Well, you, you can't even draw. Your disciples left you without the leather bag contraption thing that you always travel with to get the water out. That's why you asked me for a drink. So you have nothing to draw from, or draw with, excuse me. And not only do you have nothing to draw with, which is problematic, where would you get this living water? Now it seems, and I think commentators are in agreement on this, that she's thinking living water as in fresh water. It's, it's, a, it's a designation that could be used for the best water, for fresh water. And once again, think first century, Middle East, arid. What you end up doing is you build cisterns, right? that capture water, so when it rains, oh, we love rain, right? It fills up the cisterns, and so we've got water. 
But what you don't like so much is the further you get from the time of rain to the time of the next rain, the water, right? Boil it all you want. doesn't taste as good. You want the living water. You want the fresh water. It's no wonder there's such a big emphasis on rain and things like that being sent from God. And to this day, it's still about fighting for water so much of the time, if not oil. Who's got the water? The people with the water have the power. I want living water. I want fresh water. Where would you get this? But she's she's not tracking with Jesus. Verse 12 says, Are you greater than our father Jacob? What do you think the implied answer is in her mind? No. Again, Jacob, our father, our spiritual ancestor, the patriarch. Oh, remember, we believe in Genesis. We're Samaritans. He gave us this water. You don't get better than that. Jacob's well. His name's in the Bible. Who are you? Right? Are you, are you, are you better than people who are talked about in the Bible? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right? You get, you get the sense. Who in the world do you think you are, pal? Guy who talks to Samaritan women. I mean, she's not about it yet. He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. The implied answer from her is no, you're not greater. If anything, she's thinking. You Jews have nothing on Samaritans. I mean, if she'd never met a Jew before in her life, she's like, yep, just like my parents told me. (laughs) Jews. I know a lot more than he does. Never mind that these specifics aren't in Genesis, by the way. Striking reality number four on my little list, at least. Jesus is greater than Jacob. In fact, he's greater than all the patriarchs. And John's gospel account is going to go out of its way to show that throughout. And so note the irony. Verse 13, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. It's not the physical. I'm not talking about the physical. I've got to help you go from how you're thinking about this. And I know that's where we started. But that was just a starting point. I'm talking about something entirely different. I'm not talking about the physical. Isaiah 12, verse 3, talking about this this new blessing from God that that will come in the future from Isaiah and then in the ultimate future. Isaiah 12, 13, the wells of salvation are talked about. It's not talking about literal drinking water. It's, it's figurative. This is salvation comes, but it's like water because water is necessary for, for physical life. We're talking about the wells of salvation. What's necessary for eternal life? Verse 15 says of our text, The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water 
so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Does she get it? She still doesn't get it. I don't know if I would get it. I don't know if you would get it. But now we get it. She doesn't. Even what we've learned so far from Jesus in chapter 3, if you believe in Jesus, you trust in Him, you have what? Eternal life. So we're kind of cheating because we were there with the account of Nicodemus. We know that when he says whatever it is leads to eternal life, in this case water, we know that he doesn't mean water from Jacob's well. He's using water in a spiritual sense, in a, in a figurative sense for believing in him. I'm, I'm it. I, I'm the water. You need me. Eternal life. She doesn't get it yet. Another striking reality is that Jesus is misunderstood by many. Jesus is misunderstood by many. And if you really struggle with people today who misunderstand Jesus because you're trying your best to make Jesus clear to people, which I think we should do, Jesus didn't mumble. Jesus didn't have a clarity problem. The best communicator who ever lived, who ever walked the face of the earth, he knew everything, and he still was misunderstood by people, which doesn't say something about him as it says something about them and us. Just remember that. Isn't it interesting so far, as I can recall, at least off the top of my head, we have misunderstanding in chapter 2 by the Jews when he talks about I'm the temple, and they think Mount Zion temple. Chapter 3, you must be born again. Nicodemus, religious leader, and he's like, born again? How could you go back into your mother's womb and come back out again when you're old? Misunderstanding again, because he doesn't understand that you must be born anew, born from above, born from God. It's an artificial, wooden literalness that goes against the author's intention. And here we have a same, similar kind of thing. I, I do like it. I don't think it's a mistake or an accident. We have chapter 3, Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews, the Bible teacher. And here we have, like, opposite extreme, Samaritan woman oh, with a bad reputation. Both misunderstand. The human condition... Spiritual blindness, spiritual blindness affects everybody. It's good for us to know that. Good for us to remember that. And it's also good to remember, and we're going to see at the end of this, we won't get to it today, Jesus is the Savior of the world. Not just Jewish people. Not just cultic Samaritans. He's the one and only Savior. Wonderfully, magnificently so. And that's how the, the section ends, in case we don't get to it. Okay, so you, you, just, just imagine, Je Jesus is offering something. He's being gracious, he's being kind, he's... he's, he's 
willing to put himself in a place where he would be criticized. He's reaching out to her. Doesn't get it, doesn't get it, doesn't get it. She doesn't get it, she doesn't get it, she doesn't get it. So now what he's going to do is apply pressure and get her attention. Right? He's going to let her know that he knows about her and her sin. If if this weren't Jesus, I might say, at this point in time, he says, well, maybe this will work. I don't want to say that. How about this? Music, Music changes again. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. It's like, Where'd that come from? I think where it comes from is it's going to get her attention. You're having a problem understanding who I am and what I know. Let's not talk anymore. I want you to go, just go home and get your husband and bring him back. Verse 17, the woman answered him, I have no husband. Verse 17 goes on to say, Jesus said to her, you're right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands could even be five men. You've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. True and not truthful, right? Yeah, on the face of it, you're saying what's true, I have no husband, but it's not really truthful. And so Jesus is making it utterly clear he knows all about her. But he doesn't know her. He's never met her before. Verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Do you think? You know? She wasn't waiting in line beforehand, you know, and they had the crowd workers asking them questions. He just knows. Another striking, striking reality about Jesus is Jesus knows things. <laughs> he knows things about people. He knows things about their sin. He knows all things. Verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. Ah, notice what she's doing. And I don't want to read too much into this, but I'm just following the narrative. And all of a sudden it became a moral issue. And she's like, let's talk about theology. Right? We went from water to theology to fornication. I, I like the theological conversation better because I still think you don't know what you're talking about because Jacob gave us this well. So let's talk about theology. Verse 20, the word for the day, subterfuge. I just want to say it. I like that word. This is subterfuge. She's dodging. She's trying to cloud the matter. Verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, Mount Gerizim. See, that is the issue. But you say that in Jerusalem, that's Mount Zion, is the place where people ought to worship. That's the divide, the temple divide. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Now, we know more than she does, but but let's make sure that we know. What what is Jesus saying? 
The hour is coming where it won't be about Zion or Gerizim. What's he saying? Yeah, exactly. He's saying it's me. We know from chapter 2 when Jesus says destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up again. They think he's talking about the physical, literal temple in Mount Zion. And it's clear from chapter 2, he's talking about his body. He's talking about himself. So the hour is coming where it'll be a moot issue. It'll be an irrelevant issue. It'll be an irrelevant theological divide and debate because of who I am. It's, It's fantastic what he's doing here. It's fantastic to even watch the flow from chapter 2 and chapter 3. By the way, it's chapter 2, verses 19 to 21, if you want to jot those down. And then how about the hour? An hour is coming. It's fascinating to think through how Jesus uses hour. He doesn't always use it this way, but sometimes he uses it significantly, strategically, in a theological sense. The hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. He's talking about the the culminating high point of his redemptive work when he goes and suffers and goes to Calvary and is executed and then is raised and is glorified. It's talking about that group of events, redemption, The hour. And so here he's saying, the hour has not yet come. I am going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be delivered. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be raised. I'm going to be glorified. And that will solve the temple problem. John 12, 23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. John 17, 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Can't wait to get to that. Mark 14, 35, he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. It's the passion, it's the crucifixion and suffering. Matthew 26, 45, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. It's the completion of the work of Jesus and that makes temple locale debates irrelevant. I'm the special meeting place where God meets with his people. It's good. Jesus is it. Striking reality on my list, it's number seven. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the special meeting place. Jesus is where God uniquely reveals himself. Jesus is where there is atonement, right? Which brings forgiveness, which is what happens at the temple. Jesus is where you have reconciliation. Jesus is where you have mediation. Jesus is where you have salvation, to use the all-encompassing word. Do you want to know God and experience God? Have an encounter with God, a genuine one? However you want to say it, it encompasses all those things. And Jesus is saying, the hour is coming. It'll be clear, it's me. That's why I came. The Word, chapter 1, the Word became flesh and, right, tabernacled. The idea is templed, met with us, tabernacled among us. This, This is great! But this is why people hate Jesus. It's why people love Jesus. It's why some people who hate Jesus end up loving Jesus. Because it means the illegitimacy of of the debate even. 
I, I bring the fulfillment. It was all anticipating me. To go backward would be, right? We don't even want to say it. Wrong! Because this is so right. I interpret that as keep going, pastor. (laughs) Now, this next part's not for the faint of heart. Because I'm probably going to say the wrong word again. So I, I know it kind of hurts our PC ears and political correctness and, and it, we can't ever judge anyone and we can never say anything's wrong and I just want to introduce you to Jesus. And if Jesus were anyone other than who he's claiming to be, it would be offensive. It should be offensive should be inappropriate. But if he really is who he says he is, hold on to your hats for this one. How about verse 22? You, he says to the Samaritan woman, you Samaritans, you all, if they were in Texas, it'd be, well, they are in the South, y'all, you all worship what you do not know. And we kind of read that and we're like, oh, that was nice. It wasn't nice at all. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. Try saying that to somebody who knows what you mean by that. It's an insult. Worshiping what you don't know, to use an Old Testament word, to use the formal word, is idolatry. You Samaritans are a bunch of idol worshipers, and idol worshipers are fools because they make idols with their own hands, they prop them up, and then they worship them. How dumb. And if it gets too cold, then they burn them and make more. I mean, it's just crazy. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. You are idolatrous. You are ignorant. It really is harsh. But why is he doing this? If he's the the one who loves us. He's doing it because it's true. And the most unloving thing would be to affirm someone in their ignorance and so the way I'm coming across and too harsh and too whatever it might be I'm sorry I apologize and would pray that God would take that away but just take the words for what they say I don't know I don't know what Jesus tone was could have been way way more intense could have been way softer I don't know but he says you worship what you don't know that's not a compliment It's the opposite. We, the Jews, he's saying at this point in time, we worship what we know for salvation. I know he's talking about the Jews because keep reading. For salvation is from the Jews. Let me settle the debate between Zion and Gerizim. Zion is right. It prefigures and anticipates me. That sacrificial system is from God. Those are prophets of God. You have been very deceived in believing only the first five books. I would challenge whether or not you really only believe the first five books. I mean, this is, he's, he's, he's dropping the gauntlet because he loves her. 
And by the way, she's going to respond in a good way. Doesn't mean everybody always does. By the way, do you think we can safely conclude that there were a lot of sincere Samaritan people? I don't know why we wouldn't. But sincerity is not the issue because sometimes people, all of us at times, are sincerely wrong. He's not going after her sincerity. He's going after her object of faith. But the hour is when I can simplify it all for you. You need to turn to me just like the Jews need to turn to me. Striking reality number eight for me, Jesus exposes false religious systems. Jesus exposes false religious systems. He ends up being the the, the litmus for this. This would be a good place for us to stop. It actually wouldn't be a good place for us to stop, but social norms demand some of these things sometimes. Let me give you the preview, though. She is going to run home, not to get the guy she's been sleeping with. She's going to run home, and she is going to announce to everybody that she's met someone who knows everything about her. I think he might be the Messiah. Oh, wait a second. The Samaritans historically don't talk about a Messiah. The Jews do. But they knew who Messiah was. They knew about a Messiah. That's what the Jews believe. It's fascinating. Everything turns. And we're going to end up having all kinds of people coming and believing in Jesus as their Savior. Jesus loves sinners like you and me, religious or otherwise, cultic or otherwise, so much that he speaks truthfully. And it's extraordinary. You have to know you have the disease if you're ever going to know that you even need the antidote. This is magnificent. So we'll stop here. We'll pick it up again next time. Um, But we can be thankful this morning that by trusting in Jesus, we have eternal life, and He is the one who provides such things. Father, thank You for this morning. Thank You for these kinds of historic events that really are are historic in ways that are mind-boggling to us, that there's so much for us to learn, even about the here and now and about our lives from this very account. We thank You so much for the way You work. We thank You for Jesus, that He is the Savior of the world. He's not just for so-called good people. Uh, He's for all different kinds of people, and we're very, very thankful. May we leave today impressed with Him, resting in Him, but also willing to, to lovingly and compassionately talk to people like He did about Him. In Jesus' name, amen.